0: It's a banner year for your basic turf disease.
1: From the hills of central New York, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My old pal, Rich Buckley, is with us today, and you know when we hear from Rich, it usually involves stress and anthracnose, so it's a perfect time to thank our sponsor, The Plant Food Company a Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1946 by Edward Platts, now led by Grant and my old pal, Tom Weiner. Anthracnose basal rot on annual bluegrass and other species is worse when plants are stressed. Research with Plant Food Company programs has shown how proper nutrient management, especially nitrogen, will reduce anthracnose issues and allow for maximum playability. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get some information. I'm joined by my old pal, Rich Buckley, the director of diagnostic services at Rutgers University and a proud member of the turfgrass team down there at Rutgers. And we're having a run at Rutgers, folks. Just had Dr. Hemfling on the last episode, Rich. But, uh, you know, always uh, pleased to chat with you. I'm sure this is a busy time of the year, but, you know, you and I chat all the time. Let's start by how surprisingly easy the season seemed to start. What are your thoughts about how we got here now that the stress is starting to build in the system?
0: Well, yeah, it's a great question because, uh, you know me, uh, when everyone's having a problem, I'm kind of happy and I, and i've been i was grumpy for <laughs> the better part of june we we were slow and i and i think the reason why we were slow is because of you know it's always the weather we were having moderate temperatures mostly a few hot days but regular rain you know rainfall that was timely and and it kept the grass growing well and we really weren't seeing a lot of diseases Now, that has changed dramatically in the last three or four weeks. You know, the rainfall was more dramatic. We had higher uh, uh, rainfall totals, more frequent rain, and so we're starting to see some trouble on putting greens out there now. Okay,
1: right. So... We started out okay. It was enough rainfall that most soils, even if they weren't great, could manage the water. Now, obviously, you know, we're talking about sort of northeast, mid-Atlantic, but Rich, you, you get samples from all over the country and even in the southeast, uh, chatting with Lee Butler earlier in the season You know, it was really good for the cool season grasses, not so good for the warm season grasses. But I think with the amount of rainfall they're getting down there, all this rainfall creates above and below ground problems. So let's start with the sort of above ground stuff and let's add the wicked cool smoke we have in the air now that's probably creating some other challenges for us. What, what the hell is going on uh, in the turf canopy before we get to the root zone? Let's talk about what the soup does in the in the leaf tissue.
0: Yeah, well, it's the compendium of turf grass diseases out there. We have enough moisture in the system and enough humidity and overcast right now from the smoke where we, you know, you just have to walk out my office and, and you see a brown patch... And you see dollar spot, you see Pythium blight in the plots. We're hunting for gray leaf spot. We haven't seen it yet, even in the inoculated plots, but that's just around the corner. Um I still even have red thread in some of the fine fescues in my neighborhood that's active at, you know so uh it's a banner year for you know your basic turf disease
1: and it's It seems like the pressure has been so intense for so long. I mean, you really don't need risk models d- during these periods of time because they're pretty much flat
0: lines, right? Oh, yeah. It blows the risk models out. Right. You know, I've said, I don't know if I say, say this in public, but, you know, at this time of year, integrated pest management of a putting green is spray every Monday.
1: <laughs> so that's the question, right? The question is. You know, when you get into this high pressure, things like red thread, even you and I would say, boy, it's got to be pretty bad for brown patch to take out grass. Obviously, when it gets bad enough for brown patch to take out grass, you're getting pythium taking out grass. But I think we've seen leaf spot taking out grass, turning to melting out uh, in some of these conditions. That's really the kicker, right? It's that, yeah, we typically get these periods of time, but it seems like it's longer than normal
0: right now. I would agree with that. The longer you have the periods uh, where the disease triangle models are functional, you know, the longer the pressure, the more damage you get. And, you know, a disease like brown patch, which is cool, comes and goes and turns off and on, stays turned on for four weeks, you're going to definitely lose grass. That's right. You know, and some of the grasses, you know, the colonial bank grasses are dead outright. (laughs) You know, the tall fescues suffer, but kind of tolerate it a little better. But the longer, the more severe the disease.
1: Okay, before we move into the ground, because there's obviously all this rainfall wreaked havoc below as well, particularly if your drainage isn't well, you brought up the whole idea of scouting for gray leaf spot, right? You and I have talked with the group that, you know, there's these two schools of thought, whether it overwinters or it blows in, but it doesn't really matter because there's a few, it was a hurricane already came up, so it probably blew in. It's a little too early. When is the first you start to worry about it, you know, south to north? I mean, are the Carolinas starting to sniff it now that
0: you think it might be there? Yeah, the lower latitudes are likely seeing it. You know, south of Delaware, you know, Virginia, North Carolina, they're likely seeing it. We usually get it in the first week of August. You know, now I've seen it, you know, here on the farm as early as, you know, now, was it the 20th today. And, you know, we're starting to crack the window open for the infection period. But again, you know, normally first week of August uh, or historically.
1: So what is it about that time of year that you think is the trigger? Because I'm thinking, obviously, what Bruce Clark is thinking every time he runs in with all the grass samples to see if you've got it, uh, is, is will the heat and humidity persistent that we've had bring it on earlier? Or do we need a little bit of a dry window now to really bring it
0: on well that's a good question you know the warmer it is the less time we need leaf wetness you know if you're up in the upper 80s and 90 the window for leaf wetness is lower 9 10 hours you know as the temperature wanes you need more leaf wetness. Right. But you also, you know, as we move into the late summer, into the fall, you get bigger temperature swings. Right. And so if you got cooler nights, you get a lot more moisture in the, in the canopy, mm-hmm. and a lot more moisture in the foliage. You know, again, I may, maybe I'm speculating a little bit here, but once we get over the peak of the heat and start to break into the, we got the eyes on the fall, then there's more moisture and there is more gray leaf spot. Huh.
1: So... Let's get underground, because obviously the rainfalls wreaked havoc, uh, even in the best functioning uh, root zones there's still a lot of moisture there. And as you've taught me, any place there's water, pythium's certainly going to want to be there. That's the first thing on my mind. But the other thing on my mind are the take-all and the ectotrophic root-infecting fungi, right? All my pathology friends will love that. Let's start with the ERIs and talk about what you're starting to see because we're obviously well into the period where these root maladies will start to manifest themselves by dead grass at the surface.
0: Yes, absolutely, and we're starting to see it. You know, once we get past the 4th of July, usually they start to increase in numbers, and this year it's been typical. The summer patch... Is starting to break through. The external stresses are high enough that those plants with dysfunctional roots are starting to fail. Um, Normally, uh, it's the higher end, which has more stress from playing conditions and that sort of thing. But the disease is definitely there. And, you know, if you got rings or or patches of yellow poa, I'd be thinking about it. We've also seen some take all, bent grass teas. You know, they get a lot of seeding and and that sort of thing. It seems to be focused in the teas. at least the samples that I've been looking at in the last week or two were all teas.
1: So let me ask you about that now, because let's say take all or, or summer patch that you have, and two things. One is, is that as good as it's going to look? Can I use a fungicide, check it up, and maybe conditions will get conducive for recovery? Because we also are now in a period where you don't get rapid recovery at the end of July, To some of these maladies, so you are recommending the appropriate fungicides to try to save what you've got.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what it is—save what you got. You know, hang (laughs) hang on um, until you can seed or renovate, or you know, get some more pole growing in in the early fall, late summer. You know, you you gotta hopefully hang in there. Okay. At this point,
1: so it's harder to hang in there when you've got a layered profile, and of course. Anything that's impeding drainage that's keeping water in there then creates ideal conditions for pythium. So let's talk a little bit about pythium root rot, which is probably what most of these guys are seeing. And obviously, these are not fungi, so they require particular types of products for control. Uh, Let's start with the preponderance of the pythium root rot. And it's almost something that I almost think guys are, with poorly drained root zones, Richard, just spraying every two weeks for her, and that concerns me.
0: Yeah, it's always concerning because we're trying to talk people out of using fungicides in a lot of ways with the proper diagnostics and this evidence-based decision-making that we try to promote. But with the amount of rain that we have, you know, guys are getting four-inch downpours and just won't dry out. And it's created a condition that favors pythium. We're also seeing a lot of algae and cyanobacteria in these plugs and black layer. And so maybe you need to spray every couple of weeks so that you can hang on and get through this period until you can dry out and get some recovery, you know, get some new root. Growth.
1: Okay. So I think I've asked you this before, you know, with all the water in the system, obviously putting fungicides into it, we want to be pretty careful, right? I mean, they, you know, you got a saturated soil and you need to do that control and certainly having water there is getting it down to the roots, but obviously, if you're stepping on your soils and water is coming up around it, we've got to take some extra precautions if we're going to use fungicides, yes?
0: Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> you know, you're not going to move it into the root zone if the root zone's already super saturated. There you go.
1: Okay. So listen, I want to give you a little bit of chance to promote the lab because, you know, I don't like when you're grumpy and people aren't sending the samples. <laughs> but I want to talk about a bigger question, which is, you know, how to use the lab at this time of year for this below ground issue that we've been talking about that really needs some long-term solutions, a dry jack, a drill and fill, a rebuild, a, a turf drain, a you know very tight lateral drain, something that's going to expedite moving water. I mean, you're not going to move it out of there with wetting agents during these kinds of conditions. You just need macropore flow. The water's got to move out. How can superintendents use your diagnostic expertise and the reports you send that I've seen to then help get their clubs off that treadmill of having to make those weekly applications into those root zones because they're not functioning right.
0: Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that the diagnostic process allows is a documentation from an unbiased source or an objective of observation. And, you know, having a letter that says NC State or, uh you know, Oregon State or UMass or whatever carries some weight with your clientele. And your clientele is your greens committee and your golfers. And, and perhaps our recommendations will help convince them that uh you need to change management or tear it up more or buy more sand. Have you talked to superintendents that have been
1: interacting with you for that purpose to say... Yeah, Rich, you know, obviously I hear you say this, stressing this and making sure they understand what you're trying to say so they can communicate it. Do you get that interaction sometimes with superintendents that are trying to put a plan together to fix it and are using these uh, third party assessments like yours under a crisis mode? Are you finding that anybody's having some success using that?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It turns people's minds when, when it says Rutgers letterhead. Yeah. We get a lot of arborists that do it, too. You know, my lab's near Princeton, and I got guys walking in telling me what disease they have, and they're absolutely right. And I'm like, why do you come here? And they said, my client doesn't believe me. But Rutgers letterhead convinces them that I need to proceed with my recommendations.
1: So, Rich, let's wrap up by having you promote how people can send samples, interact with you, and take advantage of more of the diagnostic services at Rutgers.
0: Okay. We are well represented on our website, njaes.rutgers.edu forward slash plant diagnostic lab. It's easier if you just Google Rutgers Plant Diagnostic Lab we come up pretty quickly. Our emails, phone number, all of our contact information, everything you need to know on how to send a sample to us is all there. Don't be shy. Call us if you have any questions or email um, and we'll uh, do what we can to get the sample in here and help you out. And
1: like all the other diagnostic labs, uh, you take samples from all over the country as well.
0: Yeah, we, well, I'm working on something from Utah today.
1: Right. Okay, so that's good. So that way you get a broad look at what's going on. And that's important when, you know, sometimes it's good. You have local sources that are regularly looking at things. But obviously, Northern California has rapid blight. You don't see that very often here in the Northeast. But having that expertise in those areas is also critical.
0: Absolutely. and That's a really cool disease, you know, and I think it's cool because I hardly ever see it. But we do get the samples from from California and uh, uh, up into Oregon and Washington that have it. All right. Rich, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Frank.
1: Listening to Rich discuss how poor drainage increases the severity of stress-induced diseases reminds me of the need for Dryject Services. Dryject Services offer unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation. And sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. This keeps the water flowing through and plenty of air in the root zone. Dry Jack is a flexible and affordable service used by many of the great golf courses in the U.S. I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dry Jack services representative or visit dryjack.com. Frankly speaking, we want to devote some time to the great work going on in our industry outside of growing grass. Programs that are familiar, like the We One Foundation, is a good example of helping people out when they are in need. But what about kids? My next guest, Paul Weinert, representing Bridge 127, a nonprofit organization designed to help bridge the gap for foster youth and those aging out of foster care by providing them with resources that will ease transitions and improve their living conditions. Paul's husband is Tom Weinert, vice president of sales for our program sponsor, Plant Food Company. Welcome, Paula. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with that first call in 2012 from your brother about Kira.
2: Oh, wow. You're taking me back now. So I got a phone call from my brother who was currently raising his granddaughter. Her name is Haley and his son had another child and he did not feel capable of raising two little girls. He is 25 years older than me. So I'm 23 years older than me. Sorry. And I said we'd take her in and it was supposed to be temporary. And I wanted to go right through the government system that she was already involved in because I didn't want to be the one to make those decisions. I wanted it to be outside of our family. I didn't want to be sucker punched and made feel guilty and all that stuff mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it was through the foster care system. again it was supposed to be short term but it turned in you know from a couple weeks to a couple months to a couple years and mm-hmm. Kira's still with us nine and a half years later. Yeah um, it's been a beautiful journey. We learned so much from these kids. Mm-hmm. After Kira we decided hey this kind of feels good. You know, it feels good to be helping again. So let's take on other kids.
1: And these kids, let's just talk this through. You know, we're not talking walking out of the best circumstances. So when you get involved in this, there are a lot of challenges. And that's, of course, part of what might scare folks away. But you've been at this for nine and a half years, 20 kids you know, from one night to, well, 18 months, now you've got Kira more than that. So, how does this evolve when, yeah, you can help, but boy, it's a lift. And how did the foster care system embrace what you wanted to do and how has it been navigating that? Well, for us as foster parents, it has its challenges for sure.
2: You know, these kids come in and some are drug addicted from birth. You know, if we take on a newborn who has been inside of its mother who has been utilizing drugs for how many months and and they've gone through withdrawal and other children are alcohol dependent and then you get some who don't have that particular issue but who have been in abusive circumstances Mm -hmm. or who have been in neglectful circumstances. Mm -hmm. Maybe the parents are trying the best that they can do, Mm -hmm. but it's just not enough.
1: So obviously you saw a need and this idea came up. Is that the next step? Because I can tell you that it seems to me the work you have to do to get these kids from these really horrible places is it requires a significant amount of not just time, but emotional energy, too.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, it, it's not just about fostering. It's not just about physically taking in these kids. There is so many ways that you can help. There is just watching a child for a foster family. Coming alongside a biological family who you see struggling and help them out, whether it's financially or whether it's helping to guide them in the way that these kids should be raised and keeping them out of the foster care system. There's so many avenues you can take. And then, you know, that's where Bridge 127 came in. You know, initially we saw these kids and they would come to our house with literally a black garbage bag full of clothes if they came with anything. And and it just it made us so sad. And and even though we were physically taking care of these kids, we wanted to do more. We wanted to fill all of their needs before they came to us, after they left us. And and again, that's where Bridge One Twenty Seven came into fruition. It enables us to provide clothing not only to foster families but to high risk families, ones that have, who have not gotten into the foster care system, but maybe are involved with their local state agency children and youth system and they just need a little bit of of lifting up and granted there's going to be some families that take complete advantage and we we understand that but it's not the kid's fault even if their families even if their parents do take advantage or their family their parents are the ones that are doing the wrong things it's not the kid's fault
1: well that goes back to the question of what you mentioned earlier the best thing to do is to try to keep the kids out of the system, right? And make sure everybody's trying to do the best they can to raise their kids, right? And there's all kinds of challenges from mental health challenges to socioeconomic challenges that all these families face. How is your experience, I'm going inside baseball here because it's so interesting to chat with you, but how is it when you want to go support a family that you see at risk, how well is that always received? You sort of have to be a little stealthy about sometimes because people might not want to actually be reminded
0: that they might need that help.
2: That is definitely a challenge for us. We do have caseworkers on our side that kind of link us Hmm. to those families in our communities. But as far as anyone out in the general population who wants to help, just meeting their their general needs, just giving them things, giving them a food voucher saying, hey, you know, let me take your kid for an hour. A lot of these parents are just so overwhelmed, and they just need someone to just give them that lift up. Yeah. And, and I understand that they're definitely not always, it's not always received appropriately. But it's either you do nothing or you step out and try. And, and that's the beautiful thing.
1: I love to hear you not deterred by those that take advantage, right? Because that's the drumbeat we hear as a, an alternative. Oh, well, you know, as social services, people take advantage. But that doesn't seem to deter you, nor the many people who are giving of their time very freely. W- what is it you'd say to those people that would say, oh, you know, they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And, you know, how do you reconcile that? Or what do you say to those folks? Well,
2: I think people are always going to take advantage of us not only us, but other people as well. And if we don't give them an example to follow, then why would they have any reason to change? Hmm. So if we're not ourselves stepping out and fulfilling the need, knowing that we're going to be taken advantage of sometimes, but knowing the impact that we can have in a child's life who didn't ask for those particular parents, who didn't ask for that situation to occur in their life. If we're not doing it, then who else is going to?
1: So, you, you know, this sort of had an idea in 2012. We're here in 2021. I'm reading this lovely article from May of 21 uh, about this in Golfdom. And to see the, you know, the way it looks, I want to just ask you, how's it going right now? Let, let's talk about, you know, how Bridge 127 is doing today relative to where you know, you thought it would be because I can imagine the pandemic didn't make this part of society better or make anything easier for folks already in this turmoil in their life. I'd imagine that you would needed even more resources. How's it been going? Well, just to tell you, initially I
2: thought, oh, well, I'm just going to run it out of a garage in my lawn. You know, and that's, that's where I initially wanted this to go. And, and it's just amazing how the support that we've gotten and, and we were able to, to lease a building. I mean, we, we've been leasing an almost 12,000 square foot building and we are maxed in that building mm-hmm. as far as how much clothing has been donated and financially the support that we've, we've gotten, especially within the golf community. I mean, that has been our primary assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gotten people locally that, are, are contributing their time, which is invaluable. Right. This Thursday, we're closing on a building that is ours because of the support that we've received from everybody. And even through this pandemic, people have wanted to support us, and we've just had to think of different ways to do it. That's where we're at. It's been
1: an amazing journey. It's so exciting. So let me highlight and embarrass, you know, an old pal of mine, Craig Currier, who I know Tom has been selling things to, you know, since we were all at Beth Page in the late 90s. When I met Tom with our Beth Page project, working with Cornell University. And so uh, along comes Craig. And of course, Craig had uh, many of us in the area were impacted by the loss, the sudden loss of Richie Spear and the tournament named after his dog. I think Cody is his dog's name and supporting a good cause in the honor of a really good guy. You know, how much better does it get, Paula?
2: It doesn't get any better than that. Absolutely. It doesn't get better. And that money
1: goes right to what you're describing.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we have no paid employees, none. So everything goes right to the kids. I mean, naturally, it has to go to a building. Unfortunately, we do have some level of overhead, but we need to. We need to have space for youth to come in, space for them to meet with us, space for the families to come in. But yeah, Craig has been amazing. I mean, we've gotten truckloads of clothing that he himself has donated or gotten from other people to donate to us. And he's been a wonderful partner in all of this.
1: So how is it going relative to the kids you're impacting? You know, over the nine years you've been doing it, obviously a lot of it's been associated with kids you and Tom have taken in. And now you're talking about impacting a, a broader sphere. How does it look? You know, Tom said the goal was to create awareness, you know, one more good home for a kid to land safely. What a great little motto that came out of the article. How is it going and seeing that happen? Are you seeing the successes, the little bit of moments of joy anyway, with the folks that you're interacting with?
2: Absolutely. And and it's not just seeing the foster families. It's not just seeing the smiles on these kids' faces when I'm able to hand them a toy, a simple toy. You know, I've gotten calls from families who are being reunified and we've been able to help them get clothing together and the smiles on their face when they are trying their best. And granted, some don't always try. You know, you have that in any walk of life, but um, that they are so appreciative of being helped. Also, the people that are volunteering—I mean, we've gotten local high school students, between eight and ten of them, show up for several weeks that they were just helping us reorganize and unload and carry things out. And people just walking down the street saying, "Hey, what are you doing in there?" And it's our opportunity to share it with them. And they're like, "Oh, you know, let me let me come in and help you." The caseworkers that are able to come in and and offer their assistance and. Recently, I've met with a company called Cloud Home. It's kind of a boarding home for youth that aren't able to be in the foster care system but aren't able to be out on their own yet. They're going to be helping us move. Their probation officer in the county that deals directly with the youth, they're going to be helping us come in, the, the youth themselves. So it's not only the impact within the families, it's the impact in the volunteering and in the community
1: So, give me some logistics, uh, websites, uh, ways of supporting it, maybe that even folks could do locally, the way people can get involved, and where to start.
2: www.bridge127.org. And there is a donate button right on there. And that is the most simple way to get money to us. Um, Our phone number is right on there to give us a call, to ask how you can be involved, how you can donate clothing. I utilize. My husband all the time for picking up clothing up in the, the New York, New Jersey, all those areas. Mm-hmm. And he he can be my little taxi. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful way. So, so the other side of it is, you know, people are listening from all over the country, maybe the world. We have quite a good following in Australia, a little bit in Europe. What are ways people could look into groups like yours locally, or can they just give you a buzz and say, what would you do? Uh, where do you start? Do you, should you just call a foster, the foster services, child protective services? Uh, what's the best way if you really want to get involved outside of the New York metropolitan area?
2: Um. Always give me a call. I mean, I can try to guide you, but I'm going to have to do research myself for that particular area. Mm. Children and Youth Services, they usually have a list of agencies that can help with different services, so that's always an option.
1: So Bridge 127... Paula Weiner, thank you so much for this great work that you're doing, taking the time to chat with me, putting up with Tom and all the years and the grinds of the golf industry. It is uh, no small task to be married to people in this business. Uh, never mind. Take on what you guys are doing. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Big thanks to both Rich Buckley, Rutgers Diagnostic Director, and Paula Weiner of Bridge 127. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dry the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.